Caceroazos, that Latin American type of protest involving pots and pans and whatever else you can use to make noise, are a staple in Chile's protest culture. And now, they've become more important than ever. The coronavirus pandemic has people stuck in their homes. Shouting in the streets is not an option. But protesters are still banging their pots and pans from their balconies. Chilean journalist Nicole Crum says it's one way the movement is adapting. So probably there will now be an unprecedented type of organizing over the internet. Through video calls, making noise with pots and pans from the windows, And I've been seeing how people are devising forms of demonstration without having to leave the house. It is something very new, very new. But what I do have clear is that people are not going to stop fighting. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The unrest in Chile right now, even from behind closed doors, is a continuation of protests we saw kick off in October last year. People are angry about policies they say unfairly benefit the country's richest and most entitled citizens. Now, as the movement trudges forward through this public health emergency, we're looking at what reforms protesters want to see, what the government is willing to deliver, and how the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic affects it all. To do that, we're talking with two journalists who are in Chile at this pivotal moment. There's Nicole Krem, who we heard at the beginning of the episode. She'll tell us about the personal price she's paid while covering the protests. We're starting, though, with Charis McGowan, a reporter who lives in the capital, Santiago. Charis, what has it been like for you and Santiago these last couple of weeks when it comes to hearing the news and seeing the reports about the COVID-19 spread. So it's been kind of worrying. Chile has one of the highest rates in South America of confirmed coronavirus cases. Um, And the end of April is expected to be the peak of coronavirus cases uh, in the country. Unlike other countries in the region, such as Argentina, Peru and Colombia, which are currently in a full lockdown, uh, Chile still is not in a full lockdown So that means crowded metros, lots of people on the street trying to get to work, no economic security for people that are not allowed to work from home, that people for people that have to go to work. I was worried also that people weren't taking it seriously enough. And I was worried to talk to my friends who were very involved in the protest movement to be like, this might not be the time to continue protesting. It's very difficult to tell people that when they feel like they're still fighting for something. For many of us, COVID-19 is disrupting our work or our social lives. Chilean protesters see it as also hampering their fight for social justice. There's this sense on the ground that President Sebastian Piñera, whose approval ratings have tanked over the past six months, could take advantage of this health crisis to protect himself politically. In many ways, the coronavirus has come at an opportune time for Sebastian Pineda. Um, it kind of deflects all the pressure that he was facing away from the human rights violations that his state was accused of. And now he has the platform to solely speak about coronavirus, 
which, you know, he has to do. People are looking at him for this, but this is also an opportunity for him to just ignore the other things that he has to be held accountable for. He came out to the public to tell them to stop gathering, correct? What what happened there? What was that like? So that was on March the 13th. He said that people should not gather in crowds of over 500 people. And people were already thinking, okay, this is going to have an effect on the protest movement. And Wednesday, the 18th of March, he mm-hmm. announced that he's declaring a second state of emergency. Este estado de excepción constitucional... This allows us to dictate a series of measures, including restriction of gatherings in public places, assure the distribution of goods and services, and establish quarantines and curfews. I say second because only six months ago, after October the 18th, he declared the country's first state of emergency over the protests, and that's when we saw military on the streets shooting at people, at times killing people. People do not trust the country's armed forces. So now he comes out and he says, yeah, we're going to put another state of emergency into effect. As of yet, the details haven't been officially confirmed, but we can expect to see military on the streets to uphold these regulations if needed, trying not to be too uh, sensationalist here. But we, we saw people die when the military were on the streets last October. So if people continue to protest and the military are back on the streets, who's to say this won't happen again? So take me back to October, because these protests in Chile started October 2019, because the government raised the price of metro tickets. Why was there such an outcry over that? It's telling to look into the weeks preceding that. So the government announced that they were going to hike the metro fare up by 30 pesos. That's three cents in the United States. So it doesn't seem too much on the grand scheme of things, but it's really important to consider the context Sebastian Piñera, he's a billionaire president. He was a billionaire president even before, like, Trump came along. He's one Originals. of the original billionaire mm-hmm. presidents, you know? So his government in general are this kind of elite political ruling class. They have a lot of money. And they, they kept making comments to the public when they were rising the fares of, of not just the metro, for example, the electricity, or they were cancelling support for education. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of things kept, kept piling up. And Pineda himself, he says these things that make people think that you have no idea. You have no idea how it is to be part of a majority in Chile because you are a very small percent of, of people that can exploit us. So it wasn't just this rise in metro fares. People just came to such like an anger at this government that they thought, no, the students have every right to jump the turnstiles and not pay these prices because you're not listening to us. They don't listen. They've blocked their ears and this is the response. They have finally provoked the anger of many citizens. On the Friday night, the 18th of October, that was after a series of these metro evasions, but as the more police came, more people joined, it spiraled into a very violent night. There was looting, there was arson. You know, we woke up on Saturday and the country had changed. We woke up and Piñera had declared a state of emergency straight away. And this is a country that's still very much scarred by a 17-year-long dictatorship that only ended in 1990. So to wake up and have the military on the streets again was very, very worrying for some people. Of course. Well, for a lot of people. Can you only imagine? As a reporter, 
What was it like for you being in the middle of those protests? To be honest, it was sh- it was shocking for for me in October personally. Like uh, I, I'm just going to quote like an editor before I was trying to do some pitches on human rights in Chile, and he he just basically told me, "Look, Chile is the stablest country in South oh, America. No. You know, people are more you know intrigued about Venezuela or Brazil. Chile is." politically much more stable, economically much more stable than other countries in the region. When this happened, it was like the bubble burst and the bubble burst for everyone outside as well. They used to call it the economic miracle, but to watch cost. And this was the protest. This was the movement that you could see. The economic miracle was definitely like a mirage. Chile's famous stability was shaken and shattered. It seemed like overnight. The October 18th protests made international headlines. There were videos of a skyscraper on fire. There was looting. And security forces responded with brutal violence, water cannons and tear gas canisters. It set the stage for months of violence through the end of 2019. Hundreds of people were injured. But one type of injury kept happening. People were being blinded. And the eye has now become a symbol of the protests in Chile. To this day, over 440 eyes have been mutilated by the state of Chile. What I mean by that is that people during protests have been shot at in the face, either with tear gas canisters or with these kind of buckshot pellets. And that has resulted in eye injury. I would love to give you an explanation as to why in Chile people keep losing eyes. But I, I don't understand it myself. Like, I don't understand how people continue to lose eyes after five months of protesting. Obviously, like, these are anti-riot weapons made and designed to disperse crowds. They're not designed to hurt people specifically or mutilate people with permanent damage. So the police are definitely using them in a very irresponsible and reckless way. With the buckshots, you should shoot them at the ground. But clearly not if people are losing eyes. Gustavo Gatica, for example, a 22-year-old student, he was shot at in the face, and he lost both eyes as a result of that, and it was from very close range. I'm just one more person who, unfortunately, was shot in the face, and I have to be in this situation. But I would like to continue being the person who is going to protest and who demonstrates. You know, I don't understand why the police wouldn't be following those protocols. Fabiola Campia, she was just waiting at a bus stop on the 26th of November. She wasn't even protesting. And the police just turned the corner and shot her a direct range, straight in the face with a tear gas canister, and her whole face was, was impacted. She lost both eyes and she lost her sense of smell. And again, the impunity for the police kind of continues. We've heard from the General Rosas, he's the police chief, that these officers are still in service. It's, it's very strange. It's one thing to hear the aftermath of these attacks on the news or hear the statistics 445 people with eye injuries. More than 34 have lost an eye. That's horrific in itself. But when you hear the first-hand accounts of how it happens, that's a different type of horror. At the start of the episode, we heard from Nicole Crum, 
another journalist in Chile. Here's her story from New Year's Eve. On December 31st, I was on my way to Plaza Dignidad, the nerve center of the demonstration in Chile. I was filming a documentary at the time about Chile's social unrest. Mayor Guevara on that occasion had said he was going to take the police off the streets. So my four colleagues and I continued calmly. We were happy to be able to record that moment. As we were passing a monument, Carabineros de Chile, we realized that the police were hidden behind some palm trees. And at that moment, they started shooting. When we started to speed up, a pellet immediately hit my eye. I instantly fell to the floor, and everyone began to scream for help. Some health volunteers who were on the scene helped me. Unfortunately, the security forces, even after seeing that there was a wounded person, they continued shooting. That was very painful and traumatic. The truth is that when I touched my eye and there was blood, in that moment I knew that I had lost my sense, that something very serious had happened. One of the girls screamed, ocular trauma. And there I wanted to die. I, I wanted to die. They blindfolded me and covered my head with gauze. They put me on a stretcher and they took me away. Nicole says she spent that night in the ocular trauma unit at Salvador Hospital. It's where they've treated most of the eye injuries. She couldn't see anything out of her wounded eye. And then the police came knocking. It was very painful because I was villainized. I was questioned about being attacked by the police. And they treated me poorly. And then at that moment, I was told I would never see with my left eye again. That there was nerve damage and that the cells of my eye would never regenerate. I had a really bad time. I thought about my career, what was going to happen in the future. I felt awful in the first days, but I was able to get up. I could go back to the house, be with my family, and have support. Nicole's story is hard to hear, and it's especially chilling when you realize that she's one of hundreds of Chileans put through this in the past six months. Chara says that brutality is not new for Chileans. I just think that Chile has this history of a violent state, and the way that Piñera will listen to an uprising is to continue with that violent character that the armed forces continue to have in this country. I want to clarify for our audience who may not be up on their Chile history, 
We've heard the name Augusto Pinochet come up over and over again in connection to these protests. He was the dictator that ruled Chile from 1973 all the way to 1990. Help us understand why he keeps coming up now and what he has to do with social and economic inequality that we're seeing today. Pinochet was a, yeah, he was a dictator who, who seized the country in 1973 by staging a military coup. And he was very much against socialist politics. So what he did was implement a very strong regime, a strong economic regime, basically to privatize everything. So that's deregulation of the markets and creating this kind of neo, neoliberal model. Can you talk to me about what that means? It's basically the opposite of a social state. So the state doesn't control anything, then everything is controlled by the markets and it's privatized. So instead of having, for example, state education, you have private education. Instead of having state pensions, you have private pensions. Instead of having state healthcare, you have private healthcare. So all these privatized systems control the whole economy and the whole way Chile is run. People can sell pretty much anything in Chile. Even the water is privatized. That means social security is so limited you really can't rely on it. There's also no state health care, and even primary school is a huge financial burden for most parents. When frustration with that system boiled over in October, the Chilean government did give some concessions. It scrapped the metro fare increase. Pineda raised the minimum wage. He promised to reform the health care and pension systems. But protesters were still unsatisfied. And after what Charis calls a summer lull... There's a joke that Chile's the only country that goes on holiday from the revolution. <laughs> Protesters were back on the streets in early March, demanding more systemic reform in Chile. The whole thing that hasn't changed is the economic model that I'm talking to you about. So the economic model is very much protected and very much ingrained into Pinochet's 1980 constitution. And obviously a lot of the political class in Chile want to protect that. So a lot of people now are asking for a new constitution as they see this as a way to address the problems of the economic model. So people like, for example, that don't have water, there's droughts in the region because the agricultural sector is taking all the water from communities. They see the new constitution as a way to defend environmental rights, to say, no, we need to put a stop on agricultural industries taking our water. Or, for example, the feminist movement, they see the new constitution as a way that we can get parity in the way that the constitution is designed, to have female voices heard. Or, for example, education, education reforms, they see the new constitution as a way to ensure that there is uh, equal rights to education. So basically, a new constitution would mean kind of like a blank slate for many minority groups in Chile to ensure that there is greater justice and that human rights are put ahead of the economy and ahead of the markets. Pineda had also conceded on this point last year. He'd promised a referendum in late April on rewriting the constitution. Of course, because of coronavirus, that's not happening now. So the referendum to change the new constitution was originally scheduled for April 26th. That has now been postponed over concerns about the coronavirus epidemic. Um, pretty much all political parties agreed that it should be postponed. So now it's set for the end of October. 
There hasn't been a lot of backlash among protesters, among the people that were supporting the change of constitution um, about the change in referendum date. Actually, I think a lot of people agree that it's not the time to do it. End of April would be life-threatening for many people if there was a vote to take place at that time. But there is a kind of anxiety among protesters, among people that really want a change in the constitution as to how they can still make their demands heard. What we saw last Friday, which is March the 13th, was this huge casorolazo that happened from the balconies. So, you know, there, there, are, there are different forms of protest movements coming out, and I think we'll see more and more ways that protesters will continue to make their voices heard without having to take to the streets. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana manages our Twitter and Instagram pages. We're at AJ The Take. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Lauren Whitney Gottbreath, David Port, Nicole Crum, and Charis McGowan. We'll be back. Thank you.